0: This is Southeast Asia Crossroads, an educational podcast from the Center for Southeast Asian Studies at Northern Illinois University. From music to maps, money and modernity, this is where ideas come together.
1: Well, hello and welcome to another edition of Southeast Asia Crossroads. Uh, I'm your host, Eric Jones, and uh, we're we're excited for a couple reasons. One of them is our uh, special guest. But another is that we are uh, we're in studio, folks. Let's give ourselves a round of applause. Yeah, we are. We're back at the uh, headquarters, uh, podcast headquarters, where the world media empire of Crossroads is run out of here at the Pottinger House. Um, and with me at the at the controls is uh, uh, is Isabel Squires. You want to say hi, Izzy?
0: Hi. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Izzy is uh, how long? How long have you been? How long have you been at NIU?
0: Well, I did my master's here in 2015, and then I returned for my Ph.D. in um, 2019, so this is my second year as a Ph.D. student.
1: Yeah, and, uh, and for several reasons, we have, we have Izzy with us. One of them is, uh, well, maybe I'll, I'll, I'll let you introduce uh, just briefly who our, our, our special guest is, guest speaker. Go ahead, Izzy.
0: Okay. Um, with us, we have Dr. Michael Hawkins, who is a professor at Creighton and an alumni of the NIU History department um i I was in his classes when I was an undergrad, and um, I, I think that this is where where my love for the Philippines really began was in his classes, and i was I feel very fortunate that we got to work together and it it really made me excited about the field and I wanted to go further so I went to NIU for grad school and here I am.
1: Hey Mike how does that feel?
2: That feels good <laughs> I'm such a proud papa I can't believe one of my very own students.
1: Yeah Mike is uh one of our he's been Johnny Appleseeding for NIU for for many years going out and uh, sending us some of our best students and uh uh, thanks. Uh, he is, he's here to talk about, um, uh, he, he gave, he gave a great talk and he's going to be one of our fe- our featured uh, speaker for our student conference. Um, we're gonna, we're gonna dig into s- uh, sort of a, a part of his argument here and then, um, uh, and then, and then talk about his other, uh, his other great published stuff. Um, but he's here to talk about, uh, semi-civilized, the Morrow village and the Louisiana purchase, um, exposition, uh, so give us a, drop us in a time and a place, Mike. What, um, what's, the, uh, what's the Louisiana Purchase Exposition?
2: So the Louisiana Purchase Exposition was a grand uh, exhibition that was held at the St. Louis World's Fair in 1904. And it m- was designed to do a couple of things. It was meant to be a celebration and testament of American industrial modernity, a real celebration of America at the dawning of the 20th century. And where my book is concerned, it was also supposed to provide a kind of object lesson uh, scientifically for the American public and for anyone who wished to come about the nature of human progress, um, human evolution, civilization. And it kind of explicated the massive differences people were observing at this particular period in history. I mean, a lot of People were plagued with questions of why did this area industrialize and this place didn't, and what are we doing in the Philippines? What are we doing in Cuba? What are the British doing in India? And so this exposition was going to be sort of a grand object lesson where the world could be brought up to speed on the state of the state of the globe.
1: And uh, and I guess so. The the and the moral village. um, Those of us on the inside know uh, who the moral are and what that what the villages look like. Um, uh, What what is the moral village that uh, that is. reconstructed at the Louisiana exposition.
2: Yeah, so the centerpiece of the entire exposition was going to be the Philippine village, largely. And the Americans were going to use the Philippine village to show what they had really accomplished in terms of colonialism and the exporting of American values and industrial uh, ingenuity. And so they actually acquired 1,100 Filipinos, brought them over, of all different varieties. And part of the reason they were so excited about the Philippines is Americans believe that the Philippine Islands contained every conceivable type of human evolution, all the way from
1: what they consider to be
2: Stone Age primitives to on the cusp of industrial modernity in the form of the Philippine Scouts.
1: So, is this like on the on the T-shirts when you see sort of the uh, <laughs> the various stages of sort of, of man, like they're, um, I, I guess this this mentality of sort of stage theory of of sort of civilization? Um, how, how does it? Where does it come from? You know, it, it,
2: I think it's got multiple sources. One thing that's really interesting to me in both my books is the way that you have this sort of fractured temporality where everyone living in 1904 would acknowledge the fact that they live in a simultaneous temporal moment, but none of them would concede the fact that they all inhabit the same civilizational time. And so they would say, well, we inhabit industrial time. These people inhabit medieval or antebellum U.S. or ancient or Stone Age or Bronze Age time and so the construction of the exposition was really an amalgam of a variety of temporalities manifested and so you could walk through a live manifestation of human history through the bronze age through medieval through early modern through pre-industrial through all the way up to what they considered to be the apex which was industrial modernity Mm -hmm. in the united states
1: and i I guess um and i'm I'm guessing that uh Science and Darwinism um, feed into heavily that this is that there, there there's a kind of a fixed there's kind of a fixed track is that right like you if you're if you're advancing sort of the most quote unquote advanced civilization to the most quote unquote primitive mm. that there's that uh, there's a, there's a sense that there's a kind of a set path that one has to be on is that where that
2: yeah this was all supposed to be highly scientific in both the acquisition of the live exhibits which is what they called the the living Subjects that came and were put on on display, they were supposed to be scientifically acquired, fi- scientifically contextualized, and then explained to the public in a way that would bring in all these various sciences you referenced, right? So the Darwinian struggle, environmental determinism, economic development, influences of various religious traditions, and then they could show how all these things shook out in, form, in the form of cultures around the world. And so... The president of the exposition, David Francis, he had this idea that the public needed to be educated, but they needed to be brought in through enticement. That you can't tell the lowbrow public, look, I got an educational opportunity for you. Come check this out. He figured that the, you need to suck them in with sort of sensationalism, oddities, freak shows. And then once we get them in, like we'll trick them into. Yeah, let's educate them when they
1: don't even know it, right? And
2: they'll come out more educated than they came in. And, Job done. Um,
1: yeah. Some of this, I guess, uh, Izzy or Mike, or both. Like another context for this is that the U.S. is coming out on sort of the world stage as a as a colonial and world empire. Uh, in in the Philippines, um, do you think that has a it, it's its willingness to f- kind of uh, flex the sort of modernity, um, progress? It, it, does that does that play a big role? Yeah I mean, how big of a role does Empire play in that in that wanting to project that out there? I think it's huge.
2: I mean, I think that I think that Americans have always been proud of their technological modernity, you know, But subtly, I think the undercurrent to all of it is that it comes with a cost. And, th- and that cost is heavy. And I think Americans since the nineteenth century until now, have been in an ongoing project of trying to justify. Their modernity to themselves, saying, look, this is where I I know we might live in a weightless consumer, you know, <laughs> hollow, non-localized, increasingly banal, and but it's worth it. And the way that you can portray that it's worth it is you can say, look, this is what we once were, like these backward, you know, quote, uncivilized people, unquote, and, and look at where we are at today. And so through the comparison, it's it's really self validating that I've given up a lot of things that meant a lot, but it's worth it because at least we're not like that anymore, right now. I got hot water. Now I got whatever. Now I got high phones. Now I've got mobility. Now I've got democratic
1: government. So for all, for all of your, um, angst and, and with modernity and anxiety, um, like it helps to look at, to look at, uh, the, the, the low base person you could have been if you, if you're, if you're stuck in this different temporality hundred percent.
2: I mean, and I think this impulse is still with us today. I mean, I hope this isn't too vulgar a statement, but I know universities have to be very careful when they go on study abroad programs, right? Because one of the things they have to really be cautious of, and I know they're very cognizant of this at Creighton, is you don't want to turn it into a poverty tour, right? So you don't want to go out, look at the world, and then come home and have a kind of Jesuit reflection on how lucky you are to live in Omaha, Nebraska. Uh, nevertheless, there's always an element of that to all of these sort of yeah. comparisons. And while we try to avoid that today, I think at the 1904 World's Fair, that's one of the express purposes is, I know you may be unhappy working in this factory, or I, may, I know you may be you know, <laughs> yeah. alienated from your labor and displaced from your family, and what, but hey, look, you still have it pretty good. Right, there are a lot of people around the world that don't enjoy the benefits of industrial modernity, and so it's it's, it's almost
1: therapeutic, I guess, in some. How about you, Izzy? What do you think the the Philippines means to sort of the United States at this period?
0: Well, I guess I'll echo the sentiment that um, the Philippines was was a way to show progress, I guess, progress in quotes um, towards civilization and to justify the. American Imperial Mission, and I I think that for people that went to these expositions, there was a lot of cognitive dissonance about um, their place in modernity versus this romanticized bygone era where they could be violent or or, um, appeal to some of their more base desires and things like that. And um, Michael Hawkins talks a lot about this in in his book and in his talk, and I think that, that that kind of modern anxiety is kind of, it's it's very important for um, kind of reifying this process of the observer who wants to appeal to being at the forefront or the apex of civilization while looking back on people from another time and kind of reassuring themselves about the things that they feel that they've lost while also kind of maybe maybe being envious in some ways.
1: Do you think does the does the United does the United States is a newcomer r- relative to say the, the Netherlands or or Britain or France? Um, Spain as, as imperialists are. Um, do they think? Um, do they have a that they're going to do it better? Like, uh, is there is there a sense we'll be better, more noble rulers than their predecessors?
2: I think so, definitely, and, and in my particular case in Moro Province, and I talk about this in my first book. When the military officials get to Moro Province in the south, and you know, they actually look to other colonial regimes to see what they might want to do,
1: and and, and and correct me if I'm wrong, the Spanish are a glaring example in their minds of right. like ha- like the worst way to do it.
2: Yeah, right. and, and from the from the military perspective, they were delighted that they were ruling over the Moros because they looked at the Hispanized lowland populations in the rest of the islands. And they said, the Spanish have really ruined them to the point that (laughs) it's going to be tough to unlearn them before we civilize them. So they're parochial and they're superstitious and they're, they're cowed by fear and they're, and they're They're not, they're not modern enlightened beings. No, disliked them for the same reason that they, you know, kept Catholics out of the United States in the 19th century. Right. That they felt that they're just, you know, not this um, Fox Weber sort of Protestant capitalist, you know, advanced modern person. But with the Moros, the military is really excited because they say, look, here we have people that are unconquered, unconquered. And I think we can do something with them. What's more, they're inspired by the fact that they feel that with Native Americans, the United States really blew it. They they, they really took these proud um, people full of potential and they conquered them in a way that was just terrible. And so the military was determined not to repeat that. In Moro Province, and so they wanted to find this middle ground of. Don't want to uh, be like the Spanish. We also don't want to be like the, the British or the Dutch and rule through subsidiary allies because it's too detached, right? We need more social engineering. Yeah. But we don't want to just carry out a conquest because we really did not do right by the Native Americans, and so we got to find this sweet spot.
1: Now that we maybe it's we should uh, for for some of our listeners, we should say the the. The define the, the, the Moros, this is, we're talking about the Southern Philippines, we're talking about Mindanao. Who, who are the Moros? So the Moros are Philippine Muslims.
2: Uh, they were given the designation during Spanish times and, of course, borrowed from the, the Moors, the North African Moors and those in Iberia. And then it was kind of a pejorative designation for Philippine Muslims. However, as we get into the American period, Filipino Muslims really adopt the title and kind of reappropriate it for their own empowerment. And yeah. today, proudly, you know, Moraland, Bansamoro, you know, all those things. And so they really have adopted the term, even though it comes off as a little grating, I guess, because it was originally meant as a pejorative term. But we're talking primarily about Western Mindanao, uh, the, the uh, Sulu archipelago at the time, kind of southern little part of Palawan, on into Saba and Malaysia. And so it's really more part of that world than it is part of the Philippines. I mean, Izzy's often brought up the fact that the Philippines is... Artificially crammed together, and the Moros very much more identified with That's the Malaysian crazy. world.
1: <laughs> <laughs> don't tell, don't tell, don't tell the Filipinos that. But yeah, um, and it was compared to compared to the rest of the Philippines, it was um, lightly to never to to not touched by the Spanish. Is that right? Like, That's right.
2: Yeah, the Spanish had gone to Sambuanga. They had had a couple of little outposts, but by and large, the, the Moros had remained independent of the Spanish and had proudly fought. A, a religious war against the Spanish, century.
1: So the um, the the in, in the in the Spanish American War, the sort of the the U.S. U.S. takes the Philippines, and um at the, the end of the nineteenth century, you know, beginning of the twentieth century, and we now we're at the Louisiana Purchase Exposition, and they're gonna like as you said, this is this part of the central, um sort of centerpiece in this in this expo uh, to show the sort of. Filipinos, were uh, there 1,100, are most of them from um, Moro, or are they... No, so out of the 1,100, only 88 of them are Moros.
2: Um, they have Igorots, and then a whole host of Lowland Filipinos, so they have Bisayan, they have a Bisayan village, they have Tagalogs, they have Ilongos, and Ilocanos, and a variety of different ethno-linguistic groups,
1: but the Moros were only 88. So so, so in their minds, they're really, they are bringing the, sort of the full this ethnographic um, time parade to to show so they can do they and and, and do they do they stage them accordingly do they rank them as ethnic minorities about where they are in the in the in evolutionarily
2: yeah for sure so they every every single Philippine village had a designation really within time or within the civilizational spectrum so at the rear end or the uh, the I don't know what you call it, this end of the spectrum, right? The, the primitive end of the spectrum. You had Igorots, and they were the huge draw. So initially, everybody wanted to come to the fair to see the Igorots. Like the, the the Stone Age. Yeah, the famous headhunting Highlanders of Luzon, uh, dressed in loincloths, um, and everybody wanted pictures. So most of the pictures you'll see from the Louisiana Purchase Exposition are going to be of Igorots. To a lesser extent, they had a group of people called the Eithas, who are also known as Negritos, and they were, um, I mean, it's terrible, but they they were designated as pygmies, and so they were on the primitive end. And then as you went up the spectrum, you got to the more Hispanized, more modern populations, until eventually, at the forefront of the spectrum, you had Philippine scouts and the Philippine uh, constabulary, and they were viewed as being just on the cusp of civilization. They were smartly uniformed. They spoke English, they drilled, they were schooled in American tactics and manners. And so they were the ones at the exposition that really were the, um, they didn't have an exhibit as much as they were in the community. So they would be invited to the ladies' luncheon. Um, they would come and visit uh, a school. They would do all these kinds of things to show this, right. is, this is what we're doing in the Philippines and this is the progress that we're making. The interesting ones are the Moros. <laughs> Those are the ones that are interesting.
1: Yeah, the um the the, the, Mor- the Moros so where where do they where are they on the scale? So the Moros for the for the, for the American organizers had a designation is semi-civilized, which I found
2: fast. And that was Hence really the title. Yeah, one of the inspirations for the book is I thought to myself, everything seems so neatly taxonomized. You know, they put such effort into these imperial taxonomies of creating the different civilizational statuses. And the Moros come in, and the Moros are semi-semi-civilized. And my first question was, what does that mean? Like, what what does semi civilized look like? Like, sometimes savage and sometimes civilized, or does it mean that they inhabit this middle ground? I I just didn't
1: know what it meant. Do you think that it leaves in like a um, a welcome opening for if they're if they're if they're they're civilized but by the Spanish then they they you said you know they're quote unquote ruined um, mm-hmm. to to some extent, but if they're semi civilized they're 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 not they're not primitive stone age, but they can be, um, then we can give them sort of the American touch and sort of sort of bring them, you know, paternalistically into the, into this new future and progress. Is that, you think that's part of the allure of the semi-civilized is that? I think so. That, that space to, 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 to fill them up, to, to fill up their cup Yeah, is, is, could be done by the Americans. Or... Uh, yeah. I think it was really
2: exciting for Americans for two reasons. I think number one is it showed a transitory phase, right? So you, you get primitive, you get civilized. But the ambiguity is what happens in the middle. I mean, what's the process? What does it look like in the middle? And the second reason that it's useful is that it's semi-civilized. It means you can be anything. So it, just on a pure, you know, sort of market level. Yeah. If I want to market them as savages, that's well within my purview. If I want to market them as sort of advanced proto-American, I can do that too because semi-civilized mm-hmm. gives me the latitude to construct how I You can pitch to each, want. either end of that. Yeah. Right. Yeah, and it, no. it wouldn't produce these weird asymmetries, right? So, if, if, if Baba take, talks about this, but if you take Igorot and put him in a three piece suit and put him at a ladies' luncheon, that appears as mockery rather than civilization. And Homi Baba brilliantly discusses this. And so, there's just something they would say that there's something wrong with that. But with the Moros, you can get them in closer proximity to the American public in a variety of ways.
1: Right. But as we go on later to tell us, with, with, uh, um, Lots of daring and marketing and, uh, and danger um, associated.
0: <laughs> so listening to you talk, I was thinking about the Moros and their particular history as being um, a place that wasn't conquered by the Spanish. They're, they're Muslim. They have more in common with other places than, than Filipinos in the north. And it, it led me to think, what... What was the narrative that was given about other intermediate groups, other semi-civilized that didn't fall on one extreme of the spectrum or of another? Like how how did these groups represent themselves or were represented in the in the fair? And like, does it follow a similar kind of story to the Moros, or is it different?
2: So I, I'm not aware of any other groups that had the designation semi-civilized, but. I guess all Filipinos resided somewhere in the middle, I guess, on the spectrum, depending here or farther from civilization. Right, right. By,
1: by de facto, they're like, hey, right. none of them are up to stuff. Right, Oswee all of We and white people, but like... To some degree,
2: yeah, yeah. Are, are semi-civilized. And I mean, a good example of a, a, a book waiting to be written, Izzy, <laughs> uh, is the Visayan village. No pressure. <laughs> yeah. So the Visayan village at the St. Louis World's Fair was, was a big one. There were quite a few Visayans there. They had their own literature, they had a lot of observers. One of the most famous things in the Visayan village was the school, the model school. And there was this really wonderful Visayan teacher and she taught uh, Filipinos from all designations. And so she's teaching Igorots and Moros and Tagalogs. and, and, And so there was this kind of interesting dynamic with the Visayan village where the Visayans are teaching civilization to the others but then the Americans are making observations on who's receiving it, right? So they make points about how certain ethnic groups stand up and they throw spitwads and they throw pieces of paper. And then they remark that the Igorots and the Moros are model <laughs> students and they sit uh-huh. and they listen to teacher. And you, but the cool thing is it's open to interpretation. So make of that what you will,
1: right? That there, are they are the Moros? So it's sh- almost run as an experiment. Just watch and draw your observations. Like- exactly.
2: Yeah. Are they, are they showing deference to the Basains because they're ahead of them in civilization, supposedly, or do we need to rethink? I mean, these Moros have more potential than maybe the Hispanized Basains, and so so much of it.
0: Well, these these um, groups are all in the same classroom, though. At the end right. of the day, being taught the same things by the same teacher, so that makes that makes you question. The real difference is there. Mm-hmm. We we, do,
1: we don't want you to use logic, Izzy, <laughs> on, on this question. You're supposed to just project sort of uh, naked ambitions and and fears onto them. You're, you're being yeah. too sensible.
2: <laughs> Come on, draw a conclusion. Draw a conclusion. Yeah, right, right.
1: Yeah. Uh, actually, this is a terrible experiment. It will never work. Like, yeah. is you're ruining you're ruining their whole uh, their whole uh, their whole model school experiment. They're not going to. Right. Yeah, but right, it's it's do do. I mean, Izzy brings up a good point and. Um, you know, the, the, we, if you do, if you don't know, you should definitely, our listeners should go look up sort of the, the, there's the, the famous white man's burden, uh, uh, Kipling, but also there are many response poems to the white man. So people were cynical about like, this is nonsense. Like this is, you know, pretty calling out were were there was there pushback in, um, what was happening in the Louisiana purchase from, from like critics of empire, critics of, uh, sort of, uh, Ah, uh, cultural um, colonization. What you know?
2: So most of the pushback I saw actually came from the avid colonialists, right? So at okay. at the time, Taft and colonial authorities in the Philippines they didn't want any part of the primitive displays. They, they said we, we shouldn't proj- portray the Philippines as backward, dangerous, savage, underdeveloped. We want to attract investment. We want to attract colonization. You're not sending
1: the best and brightest, quote unquote, like right? Because they, they thought um, that this, is a, this would maybe be a lost cause, the Philippines or something, if you project, or what was going on? Well, and for the colonial authorities, what they want the Americans to see is we are succeeding
2: in every way. Uh, you know, that we need to keep this project going. And to your point, I think there were a lot of skeptics, Mark Twain is a big skeptic, where he would maybe look and he'd say, well, what are we, what are we doing in the Philippines? Right. Is this
1: supposed to be a civilizing mission? If you're showing all these uncivilized Exactly right. Semi-civilized, then um then where's our money? Well, yeah.
2: Yeah. And if and if we've got ten million dollars to invest in a Copra farm, well, are are we gonna take it to Savage Mindanao with scared the pants off of us at the Louisiana Purchase? Or are we gonna take it to somewhere we perceive is more stable? And so uh, colonial yeah. authorities right. are saying, look, don't don't scare people. Everything is fine down there. It's gonna be all right. And so Taft, he actually puts out orders. It says, the purpose of the Philippine exhibit is not only to create interest and sympathy for the Philippine Islands, but also to give confidence in the intelligence and capacity of the natives. And so he really does not want negative displays. Now, he is in league, unofficially, and kind of, in a weird way, with Tagalog elites. Yeah. Yeah, Tagalog elites are furious that Americans have savage or semi-civilized displays. Um, And... They express their frustration in maybe the worst way possible. I mean, some Filipino elites said that the Moros, the Negritos, the Igorots are backward and non-progressive races. They're rapidly dying out. They're not going to matter in 100 years. Um, they no more represent the Philippines than, quote, the dying American represents the American people. And Americans would resent being portrayed this way. And they really see a conspiracy here where they say the Americans are conspiring to portray us as savages so they can prolong colonial rule. And this is one of the, the bases for rejecting our petitions for self-government, and so they see conspiracy.
1: Wow. What weird bedfellows then? You've I got, know you've got elites who want to end it who, are, who have the same uh, it's almost like in, in, you know in, in the Dutch East Indies there are like um, colonial officials who want to sort of codify indigenous law codes to 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 be able to exclude them from sort of universal sort of um, legal protections, and, but then and you have like sort of meaning like sort of uh, uh, socialist and social welfare advocates who want to codify them to protect them from the vicissitudes of what they see as, an, as, a, as a culturally non-specific, and so you have the same people on the same side who are really weird bedfellows for the uh, yeah. um, it, it, it makes me think that are these, these people who are recruited are they uh, the, the Moros they're from um, like Lanao where, where are they Do they come what areas are they taking from Mindanao
2: So this is the biggest misconception I had at the beginning of the book, because if you get on Google right now and you just simply Google Human Zoo, it's going to pull up pictures of the Louisiana Purchase. And I was under the impression that these were colonial subjects that were pressed into service against their will. They were made to sing and dance for the public. And I was really expecting to find something almost akin to slavery. And to my surprise, I found the opposite. Um, in 1903, Frederick Lewis and Charles Wax secured contracts with the insular government to go acquire Moro exhibits. And when they get them in to out, they're negotiating with Datus and chieftains and sultans. They're recruiting through traditional methods. They sign contracts. The Moros are salaried. The Moros design their own village. They help design their own programs and how the exhibit is going to function. Uh, in some ways, they're largely left to do their day to day activities as they see fit, and it really is a moral driven project, much more than i
1: thought i've got I've got to guess Izzy here because I know some of her some of her work now you you've done the the kind of you know culture on display some some research now, like you have some other ends of the spectrum that uh, uh, sort of when when indigenous peoples are brought um, sort of on world parade like uh Maybe give some of those examples and say, where does where this, what is this, does this feel different than earlier examples that you've looked at of kind of the human zoo kind of experience?
0: Yeah. Um, so by the time that the Americans were in the Philippines, they had already done a lot of the same kind of things in the United States with Native Americans. And one, one of the, one of the most well-known would be Buffalo Bill show. Um, where where people would perform and and do these acts and things like that, and um, George Catlin, who is a a famous painter of Native Americans, um, he he brought a group of Ojibwe people to London, and um, they they did a similar thing where they performed what in front of this? groups. Um, <laughs> I can't remember the top of my head, but it was it wasn't the, the late eighteen hundreds, so. Okay. This was um, around the time when scientific racism was really taking off, and study of phrenology and social Darwinism. Um, but before the Americans had acquired Philippines as a colony, so um, in in a similar way, although these people were on display, they they signed contracts too, and they they were compensated. And they wanted to go. They got opportunities that they might not have gotten to travel and they had a good time um so i think <laughs> well m- maybe not speaking for everybody but i think that um it's important to recognize the agency uh, that these people had because um cuz we we were discussing this earlier that um like americans might have um we we have our own way of viewing viewing these kinds of things like oh that must be oppressive and and we're in our own kind of worldview, or our own mindset of, but if we can't export these values and, and place them on another person and try to, try to tell them that they're oppressed if they don't feel like they are.
1: There's a weird paternalism that comes with trying to be, not sympathetic is the wrong word, but trying to like, um, you know, sort of the, I'm thinking of the sort of the Sarah McLaughlin kind of. You know, dog rescue video, like you almost like, you know, <laughs> make it like these that, that it's, it, it it can, and the thing is, it can be, it can be both those things, right? It could be sort of deeply problematic in, in so many ways, but also have, have lots of agency and, um, e- even authenticity. I mean, who, who is this is, it's not as, it's not as cut and dry as to say that these are, um, is that, is that part of the challenge of like, is you're trying to like, it's, it's not, <laughs> it's not in either bin or is it in all both bins or? It, yeah, I mean, it's difficult because,
2: and, and I mean to say, when I talk about the Moros participating and driving a lot of the exposition, this is this particular case. Because very, very famously, Rizal sees a Igorot in bondage in Madrid in the 19th century, and he's horrified by it. And it is horrible. I mean, it was just a gross, naked exposition of a human body that oh, happened yeah. to be alive. I mean, it was just terrible. Um, but it is because you have to, I mean, I'm trying to, you have to balance two things. On the one hand, the Moros did participate, they were contracted, they didn't want to go home, and the time came, they wanted to stay in the U.S. Yeah,
1: like, you gave a good anecdote, like, they're, they're, they're trying to, like, jump ship, right? They're...
2: Yeah, they, they, they were told it was time to go home, and so they petitioned the government and said, no, we don't want to go home, and they got their manager to go out and tell the government, you need to secure papers for us. The government said, no, you got to go, and the Moros threatened and said, well, we'll go, we'll go hide, right? We'll go off the grid. <laughs> And so they had to make sure that they were put onto transport and taken back to the Philippines because the Moros saw so many more opportunities to earn money. So I I think that's an awesome part of the story. And it's just part of the story that's highlighted in the book. That said, I also do not want to downplay the asymmetries of power that say I'm putting you on display. You're not putting me on display. Right. So yeah, this, this idea that, Filipinos were put on display for Americans, and Americans were never put on display for Filipinos. You know, can't get lost in the grand scheme of things, and that's certainly an asymmetry in power that that has to be reckoned with and understood. I I think in part of the book, I sort of take that for granted because I think that's how most people understand the fair. Um, I mean, I I make a point of it in the book, but I also wanted to correct the misconceptions that. The moros were being forced against their will or they were somehow being enslaved to do this and that just wasn't the case and i and i find that kind of inspiring that the moros take such control of this exhibit
1: yeah and, I, and maybe it's it's an it's an enticement for all sorts of researchers to to think about there's a there's a world of possibilities and and and, and to maybe you know to before we presume to know too much, you know, what was going on in our subject's head, like it's, it's a, it's a pretty, it's a pretty difficult endeavor and like to give them those range of possibilities. Um, did you want to say something, Izzy?
0: Do I have or, that look on my
1: face? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, you had that look, yeah.
0: Um, well, I guess we, we also read this book called Lost Territories and, um, Taylor Atkins class by Kristen Ziumek. And it was about, um, colonial peoples from the Japanese empire like the from Taiwan Okinawans Ainu, and, and it, it, it there was a similar argument too that um oftentimes they were able to make money they could they could sell things on the side crafts that they made and they made friends there um there was um one of the sources was a photo album that had pictures of different people from the, the exhibit and. Um, Kristen Ziomek looked at the way that these things were, were presented and and like the organization of the page and, and thought, well, this is exactly what somebody does when they want to remember something. They want to remember their friends and things like that. So there's like this yeah. nostalgic feeling for this time. This it, it might be similar to how we feel about going to camp or something like that. They they had they had good memories there, made friends, and so I I. I like that some more recent historical works are bringing the agency back. And I, I won't argue that there's an asymmetry of power, and that's definitely true. Um, but I, I think, like, like Mike said, we, we don't want it to be all, like, one-sided in the narrative and want to show that there is some opportunity for people to have agency in this situation as well. And that's very complex, and it's not black and white.
1: Right, we, 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 we know a lot more about like resistance and people's ability to find have agency in these situations. Um, now one, one, one really kind of great and terrible part of like the, we are, the, what you talked about is the, the way these that sort of the marketing, sort of the press machine that, that went into these. Um, maybe give some examples of how the, the morals are constructed as, as, as savagery and some of the kind of the game that is played by, um, by the, the, the people who are trying to really bring in, bring in an audience. Uh, like how, how, how does that work? Yeah, so we talked about all the
2: motivations. Taft has his motivations. Tagalog elites have their motivations. Francis wants to turn it into a museum. But w- one of the things that I really kind of dug as I got through this, this project was that Wax, Lewis, and the Moros, they just want to make money. That's it. They don't really <laughs> have any higher ideals. They want to make money. There's a great chance to make some money. Let's make some money. And so Wax is really kind of the mastermind of a lot of this, but he's trying to gauge American interest because the success of the exhibit, in an odd way, not only to Wax, uh, Lewis and the Moros, but also to the colonial regime is going to be measured in what was the attendance, how many people came and looked. And so Wax right away says, okay, the the best way to get people through the door is savagery. We we have to market savagery. That is going to what's, going to be what's draw what draws them in and so he has this willing accomplice in the press and all wax has to do is plant things in the press and then let them go wild with it right because they have the same motivations
1: like in, in op-ed sections or just with no with no, no just, full-on headlines okay. uh, uh, um, press
2: releases that that'll get published in the newspaper and the newspapers have the same motivation right i mean the more sensational headlines they have the more papers they're going to sell yeah and so he begins to market them in savages in all these ways. I mean, the first thing is spontaneous violence. And so he puts out all these warnings in the newspaper that you better keep your head on a swivel if you're in the Moro village because at any moment, any of these people could snap. And when they snap, they'll snatch up a sword and they'll cut everybody's head off. And so <laughs> you need to watch where you go. I mean, here's one that he, I can read. He says, the Moros are the most savage of the native tribes. They're so treacherous that it is deemed unsafe for a stranger to go among them in the Quattro. Unattended. Their edge weapons are so keen and heavy that with one blow they can cut almost the body of an adversary in half. And you would think this would scare people away, but come on. That entices you. You want to go, right? I got to to see that. Yeah. Like, I got to see that. And I, I
0: think g- that the, there was also a narrative of other Filipino groups being afraid of the Moros. And like if you hear them coming, it's time to run. And and that's definitely comes across in Lee's book, the Wish of the Chris, that. Um, he mentioned during his talk about the running German and and um, the, the way that they would go on these suicide runs and and hack down as many people as possible. And it's all very sensationalized, sensationalized about uh, the violence and um, the prowess of these people. So I think like even among other Filipinos, they they're coming out as being this martial race and... So it's in the best interest of the people putting on this exposition to really market that because people will want to see that.
1: Yeah, maybe, maybe uh, either or both of you could speak to some of the some of the sort of the n- truths slash narratives, true or not, that come out of the the Spanish American War in in the Philippines with um, uh, and and uh, with 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 sort of moral martial prow- prowess like what that 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 feed into this 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 hype that goes on to this Louisiana exhibition.
2: And that's exactly what Wax does, is Wax takes a number of pre-existing narratives right. that may or may not have kernels of truth, and he, and he really blows them up. I mean, he, one of the designations they have is his pirates. So they, they designate the Moros as the dreaded sea pirates of the South Sea, sea devils, and there's a Visayan village right next to the Moro village. And they make a huge deal out of, oh yeah, the Moro pirates are still ravaging and raping and pillaging the Visayan villages along the coast, and uh, it's never stopped, and the Visayans are terrified of them, and they rob the churches, and they rob the people. And so they're creating this kind of tension of, like, not only could they snap and they kill you, they could snap and kill these people next to them, right? They could snap and kill Filipinos. But as Izzy alluded to, the big one, the scary one, is the joramandado, right? And this is something that did occur in Mindanao, where a Moro would perform religious rites, bind his body tight with linens, and then would grab two machetes and would try to kill as many Americans as he possibly could until he himself was shot. And uh, there's some really crazy stories of this, both in the Colonial Records and in the Mindanao Herald, where a moral would come in, and they're shooting him five, six, seven, eight times, and he, he just will not go down. And so in Vic Hurley's book, uh, as Izzy pointed out, he attributes the issuing of the 45-caliber sidearm to replace the 38. Because of the knockdown power, that if the mortal comes in, I uh, just hit him once with that forty-five, and that slug will knock him right to the ground, and then I guess you stand over him, and shoot him, or something, right? That, and, and so it's this terror of the unstoppable, fanatical, suicide killer. Now there are documented cases of this. The question, of course, is always like, how often did this happen? Right? Is this really something right. that's free? was there five there in all time? Yeah.
1: Or the or the... <laughs> so 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 they they take. Um... And that's part of the genius of this, you know, evil genius of the marketing mm-hmm. machine is that you, you, you take preconceived stereotypes that, uh, that, and, and, and fears and literate fascination that people have. And then you say like, well, you know, you should come here. And like, I think like that, um, and you know, a, a phenomenon that can't help, but, uh, that, uh, that, uh, Mike and I know well is sort of the rodeo and like the, the bull riding, um, especially, like the, there's the there's the there's the there's the, the the terror and the fascination of like somebody's gonna get hurt right <laughs> yeah. or like yeah right that, yeah. That, that's oh part, yeah, that's part of the perverse incentive for going to one hundred percent going to the, the 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 extreme bowls, yeah, right these guys are um and you can you you might see something that you're it's crazy, nobody misses it, yeah, I mean you guys. You know, they got people headed off to the beer ger- garden
2: during the saddle bronc or during the calf roping. But when it's time to ride bulls, everybody's in the stands. You know, they want to see it. And I think you get the same phenomenon here, where it—I it, th- think th- it also cultivates a sense of trust in the colonial regime. That look, they may get violent, but I'm sure they have officials there to restrain. You know, I'm sure that I can be protected. We we live in the United States. It'll be subjugated. All. Yes, exactly, exactly, like, exactly right. There,
0: there's been a fascination with danger for forever um even in ancient rome i'm thinking about um i don't i forgot what that's called but the gladiators um and watching them fight to the death but of course um you're sitting up from a from a bit of a safe difference this right. up in the stands and it's just the same kind of things being remade over and over again in history in different times and spaces
1: Right, whether it's run with the bulls or whether it's like that kind of uh, a sense of there's this uh, that that adrenaline right. rush and uh, the it's almost it or almost like a uh, it it reminded me like the the you know these kind of these human zoo exhibits where if you go to like you know Yellowstone Park like the first brochure handed is that like these buffalo will kill you right right <laughs> <laughs> keep your head on a swivel yeah careful don't get too close you know right so there's right. there's a similar kinds of like
2: and every summer you get some fool out there that <laughs> wants to test the theory right just like this where she goes no i'm gonna feed it out of my hand and the buffalo sends her up into
1: montana in one blow and uh it's... yeah um i gotta root for the buffalo in that cases um, <laughs> the uh so so some of the so some of it is rooted in in a truth however disproportionate to the to the to the whole um you know, the Herbentado and uh, the, sort of the threat of sort of um, mass violence. Some of the tall tales grew like crazy, right? Like you mentioned cannibalism. Yeah. So Wax, he, he
2: you can never go this far without going further, right? I mean, Wax right. never right. knows. let come this far. <laughs> <Let's>. <laughs> How can we not push this all the way through? So we're going to just, we're going to squeeze this limit until we get the last lot, drop of juice. And so he finds that people are coming in. And they want to see this stuff. And so he comes up with, I mean, he really jumps the shark. He comes up with this outrageous tale by June where he says that not only are they jurementado, not only do they run amok, not only are they religious fanatics and pirates and, and spontaneously violent, but they are indeed cannibals. And so he starts sending these things out in the newspapers where he says. Something
1: They're... that is not documented. Oh, no, no <laughs> there is no account. And, and
2: actually, when I came across this, I reached out to all the scholars of Mindanao that I knew. So I said, have you ever
1: seen anything yet?
2: Never. I, I sent an email immediately to Jojo, uh, Abinalis, and I, was, I said, look, and you got to help me out. Have you ever heard of any cannibalism
1: <laughs> in Mindanao? He's like, never. I don't know what you're talking well, about. Especially under Islam. It's, yeah. like, it's a million times forbidden. Like- it's so, yeah. But
2: Wax doesn't care, right? So Wax, right. he gets to the newspaper, and he get these eaters of human flesh, bloodthirsty cannibals, and then Wax gives this interview, which I'm sure is just a bold, bold-faced lie, he says, several years ago, I was in Mindanao and I which, witnessed this ritual among the Moros where they created a giant white hot pyramid of stones and started throwing slaves on the stones to roast them alive. And as the slaves are screaming in agony, the Moros pick up bamboo sticks and peel their flesh off and start eating their flesh. And then he ends the interview by saying, Wow, by saying, Well, festival time, the cannibal festival is coming. It's coming in October, (laughs) right? Which just full moon is uh, approaching, yeah. yeah. (laughs) Which just happens to coincide with the end of the fair, right? So he's building anticipation for the end of the fair. They have to do it, yeah, yeah. I mean, he tells he tells the paper it is it positively cannot be prohibited. It is utterly (laughs) out of the question for the army to prohibit them. So he's telling the public, like, this is going to happen. Okay, it's just a matter of time, and it just is going to happen at the end of the fair, right? When we start packing things up. That's when it's going to go down. I don't know how the public actually reacted to this. I don't know if they thought, like, he's going too far with this. But whatever keeps the people coming in, right? I mean, whatever you got to say, bring them in. However, I do not have any knowledge from the records that the Moros participated in this. So I don't know that the Moros would say, yeah, let's pantomime a human feast. You know, I don't think the Moros had (laughs) any part in this in terms of... I think Wax was all on his own on this one. Yeah.
1: One really fascinating uh, part of part of your uh, part of your research is the sort of the so called Kodaker, a paradise for for Kodakers. Um, w- like, w- what is this, and uh, w- how do we see it in the in the Louisiana Purchase Exposition?
2: Yeah, I don't think I've ever cro- come across anything so proximate to our own time as this. I mean, I was really amazed when I read it. So, the fair was heralded as a pair. Paradise for Kodakers, and in 1888, George Eastman's Kodak Number One came out, which began to spread among the middle classes. And so, for the first time in history, Americans had the ability to document and authenticate their lives with their own cameras. With their own cameras, and so they could interpret reality in a way that could be passed on to others with little distortion. You know, I can tell you a story of when I was in India, and you may listen to the story, and you may believe it or you may not. But if I can authenticate that story with photographs, all of a sudden now I have a great deal of credibility and I have a great deal of sort of social cachet with all the people around me. But oftentimes we don't think about the powers inherent in these photographs. I mean, I have the power to establish my experience in a way that's beyond refute, whereas if you don't have the means to buy a camera, you can't. And not only is it biographical, in which I'm documenting my life in a way that I want to authenticate my experiences, it's a way of me documenting your life. And so, until cameras come along, I mean, I'm sure with sketching and and photographs, but this real question of, who owns my visage? You know, I mean, what, what rights do I have to that? And the more exotic and strange your pictures could become, the more people want to look at them. And so. Louisiana Purchase Exposition is a paradise for Kodakers because they're running around to these exhibits of the primitives and they're taking pictures of them and in many ways capturing their life experience. Now, a
1: lot of the... And in homogenized culture, like, like, oh, look, this is actually interesting. Forget the nonsense photos you have. I've got one of... Right. And at the time, professional photographers
2: were really opposed to this. I mean, J.C. Abel comes out and he just is horrified by the democratization of of cameras he says this is ridiculous now you got every idiot out there taking pictures of everything and who knows what the interpretations are going to be it takes a real artist someone who knows to properly contextualize objects and take their photographs and then preserve them for generations. now everybody's doing it that's just it's terrible he's really lamenting this. and so when people get to the fair of course they want to take pictures of what they consider to be the primitives And it starts among Native Americans. And there's this really famous incident I have in the book where there's an Indian chief and he's walking around and he wouldn't allow anyone to take pictures of him unless they paid. And so it became a big sport to sneak up on the chief, take his picture and run away. And so Wax sees this and Wax says, oh, man, this is this is it. This is the next big thing. And so he starts putting out in the press warnings that the Moros cannot be photographed. Do not photograph the Moros. You do so at your own risk. You photograph them, and they just may cut your head off. Do so, And so it's a public dare, is what he's doing. He's telling the public, all the Kodakers out there, yo, you, you, you know you shouldn't take a picture of the Moro. But if you do, you do so at your own risk, and you ha- can't hold the United States government liable. Immediately, people go to take pictures of the Moros. And the... St- The newspapers are full of all of these encounters where somebody sneaks up, snaps a picture of a moro, the moro snatches up a machete, tries to chase him down, and they're running across the moro village, and he's hacking at trees, and he's screaming, and the guy makes an escape. And what it does is it creates a vicarious experience of going to the frontier, a colonial frontier, the hunt, capture, escape, and you can participate in all these things. And have an authentic experience to prove afterwards. And so, Wax plays this up. Now, I have a suspicion. I don't know. I can't confirm this in the records. But I have a suspicion that the Moros were playing along with this. You know, that they, right. they were... Somebody takes my picture. It's like, hey, chase after him. Yes. We'll get more people in. We get more publicity. We get more money. I can't confirm that. But from everything else I'm re- I've read... Uh, Seems like. I mean, I don't know how
1: contemporary that sounds, Mike. I mean, it's not like we're obsessed with documenting all of our uh, everyday activities <laughs> and interesting photos. Were, they, were the Kodakers taking pictures of their food? Every, <laughs> I'm, sure every, every <laughs> uh, I'm sure they were. Every meal that they had?
2: I'm sure they were.
1: This
0: makes me think of when we go to haunted houses and there's the chainsaw guy at the end and that's going to chase you and act like they're going to cut you down and you know that they're not going to. But <laughs> like there's that excitement about it that's right. kind of, kind of what I'm envisioning here and I can I, I agree I, I really think even though like there's no way to know for sure that they were definitely in on that.
2: And that's a good that's a really good insight Incy, in terms of did the Americans also realize this might be play acting or did they really think they were chopped down and I don't know if I can get that from the records either but it's an interesting notion. I'm sure when they tell their friends about it they were in mortal danger. <laughs>
1: you right, right. That's the, the, the tall tale. Like, oh, yeah. Like, I barely made it out alive. This like, photograph is yeah. as close as I ever came to death. Yeah. They,
2: and it, I, I mean, I don't know. Eric was talking about it, but as a millennial, it, it, it's funny in the way that I think your generation is more conscious of this. I told a story in the talk where I was on a study abroad. Mm-hmm. You're going to see this beautiful site. And there was a student who said, Well, I, I don't want to go. And it turns out they didn't want to go because they didn't charge their phone and they wouldn't be able to take pictures. And
1: and Mike, well, pictures, or it didn't happen. Is the phrase.
2: <laughs> <laughs> right, and I was, well, other people can take pictures, we'll airdrop pictures, we'll do whatever, but there's this real consciousness of, well, I don't want others to document this experience for my authentication on Instagram or on Facebook or wherever I might post it. I need my own biographical authentication of this particular thing, which is contextualized and portrays me and the experience in a way that I approve of. Um and I, I as i was reading this i was like wow this must have skipped us xers because i don't ever remember that yeah is he speak it. for your generation <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right
0: okay now you guys are looking <laughs> at me I, I don't know what i'm supposed to say um, <laughs> i guess maybe i'm kind of an on millennial in the sense that i don't i don't really like taking pictures of everything cuz i think it takes me away from the moment but um yeah and I, I guess like, like there always is kind of a documenting on Instagram and Facebook or whatever people are using <laughs> as it, you it, can see I have a little room
1: <laughs> it's it's interesting because like that we tend to think of ourselves like well, this is a new phenomenon and and you know you know uh, you do a little scratching and like actually this is this is not yeah i mean it it's maybe different in scale and in scope and in, and in reach like you can you know uh it's not just a photo album and how a home it's, can be viewed by the world but These struggles with modernity have been happening ever since you know it began, yeah. I think so. I mean, I don't know if your kids
2: do this, but my kids would often tease each other or get into a fight where Isaac would take a picture of Mika and Mika would say, Don't post that, and he'd go, I'm gonna, you know. And he's like, (laughs) Yeah, and she's like, Don't you dare post it.
0: I definitely relate to that because sometimes, know, sometimes I don't look good in a picture and I don't want everyone to see it,
2: (laughs) which is kind of, I think some of these similar concerns you know what i mean
1: that you want to you want to be the author exactly yeah um do uh do do we know did the did the Moros or the filipinos have camp were they taking pictures themselves not that
2: not that i have heard of um and they were made to pose for a number of pictures which you can search online and a lot of those pictures that they pose for I have to believe they were collaborating in because they're in full attire they're in particular poses that are unique to moral culture they want uh, certain weapons or they want certain backgrounds and just because they they realize every human being who has ever experienced photography realizes this is a biographical technology that's what this is I will be remembered when I'm gone by what things appear in this photograph and so we've all done this to our friends you know our friends come out and he's wearing his underpants outside his pants and you're like hey get a picture of this guy he's like don't post it right don't do this this isn't really me i don't want to be remembered this way I'm that just sounded be- very specific Mike. <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah so don't just yeah, yeah. scrub
1: the image from your head right now yeah um the uh one 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 thing that i wanted, wanted to talk about as a as a really interesting factor it was the was sort of gender polygamy the kind of the kind of the the, the, the role that that, that, that played, um, what were some of the sort of gender and, and slavery? How did, it, how did that play a, play a role in, in, the, in the Moro exhibit? Well, I think one of the unexpected
2: things that Wax and Lewis found is that Americans came not just to view savage Moros and oddities and, and sensational things, but they really came, in many ways, admiring them. So the the morals seemed so rugged and masculine and free in a way that maybe Americans thought they used to be in pre-industrial times. And Moros, or Americans saw in morals not only kind of a savage other, but more and more, as the fair goes on, a familiar subject. Something that they maybe kind of missed about themselves or something they might have forgot, you know, once upon a time. And so Wax, ever the entrepreneur... He wants to cash in on these things. And so not only does he say, yeah, the Moros are like us in the yesteryear, but they're allowed to do things that you are no longer allowed to do. And this shows maybe the the darkest, sort of seamy underbelly of the display where Moros were made as a kind of projection technology where Americans could indulge in behaviors that were now absolutely taboo, that you could no longer get away with. And so in the book, I call this sanitizing the taboo. And he finds that a lot of people come in. And the two things that American public really fixated on um, are pretty crazy. So the the first of which was slavery. And it's been pointed out by other scholars. uh, Vukuna Gonzalez points this out, that the fair was held in Missouri. And some of the old southern sentiments were alive and well. As a matter of fact, at the fair, if you can believe this, they had an old plantation village where they had set up an old plantation. They had hired African-Americans to act like slaves. Um, You could go to the plantation house, you could sit on the porch, and you could actually pantomime or pretend, simulate an existence as a slave owner in the Antebellum South. And so Americans, in some ways, were curious about indulging these old ways of living. And so when the Moros came, it was already well known in the United States that Moros had practiced slavery. And so when the Moros get there, the headline in the St. Louis Post-Dispatch is, many visitors to the World Fair will for the first time see human beings held in slavery. And it was kind
1: of this enticement that, hey... And the Moros in particular are the other are practitioners? Is that, yeah, yeah. Moros are the
2: practitioners, and they, they were able to, Now, there's some dispute on what they mean by slave and did they really have a slave, and, but they build it up, and there was this idea that for this generation, you mm-hmm. have never seen a slave. I mean, how unique would that be to come see a slave? And So people would flock in... To behold a person in bondage.
0: You know what this reminds me of? Have you seen the show Westworld?
2: Yes, I haven't.
0: Oh, it's so good. <laughs> it is. It is <laughs> but good. but anyway, one. the whole premise yeah. is it's it's um it's kind of like Jurassic Park because I think Michael Crichton um he wrote a story or yeah. something and and that's what it's based off of. But it, it's there's um, a park that you can go where you will go to the Old West, just how it was, and you can watch people kill each other. You can go to the brothel and do whatever you want. You can get into bar brawls. You can go on quests and adventures out in the West and shoot people, and you can't die. Like if I, I don't remember if you can well, they're, die, they're, but they're, you just wake like, up. They're,
1: they're automatons. They're robots, but right. all, they look completely human. All the other people are. All the actors are... So you can shoot them, you can do whatever oh, wow. to them, and they because they're not actually human beings. Yeah, and wow. then the
0: next day they just they go, they clean them up, and and they f- they make sure that they can operate the next day, and and they don't remember. So they're just playing the same day over and over again, but they become sentient eventually, and then all. <laughs> it's a great show. Okay, <laughs> uh, but it reminds me a lot of this modern anxiety and. Um, Like a a desire to witness some of these things for yourself, even if they are dangerous, even if it's taboo. Yeah.
2: Yeah. I mean, it's, it it seems like a, I I guess you're right. Kind of a modern human inclination to go back when you, well, we were freer back. We were less surveilled back then. There was less societal conformity, less homogeneity, less. It's funny though. They fixated on these, on, on the kind of the bad things, right? But but it also, slavery, gives them a chance to medicate some of the anxieties they had about participating in slavery, or their grandparents participating in slavery. So there's this entire narrative that the morals of semi-civilized are marching towards civilization. And as evidence of that progressive march is a phase of slavery. And they they come up with all these it was look? hey rome had slavery and greece had slavery and india has and all these places had slavery and so it's a part of the human evolutionary experience and so you could go see an actual live manifestation of this which i think made a lot of americans feel better about their parents we're on the
1: we're, we're on the next stage like or, or or i guess both things that our parents weren't so bad like these morals are okay and then we're 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 on the next stage of evolution. Exactly.
2: That, that my grandparents or my great grandparents or who, whomever participated in slavery wasn't doing so out of moral uh, failures. They were doing so out of evolutionary necessity in terms of the march of time. And so the Americans are saying the morals are just behind us in time. Yeah. And that's, I think that medicated so many of the anxieties and guilt and shame of having had a family that might've participated in slavery, slave owning or slave trading or in, You know, some of these things that
0: that makes me makes me wonder, though, uh, what about people whose family were the slaves uh, the descendants? Like, what do they feel about this? And.
1: Right. Yeah, of course. Yeah. (laughs)
2: Unfortunately, at the time, nobody was asking those questions. (laughs) Uh, They really were just because and this is a good point, Izzy, that the march of civilization was a racially exclusive phenomenon for American fairgoers. And that that really does deserve. Stating here that they were looking at it in terms of Anglo-Saxon uh, progress through civilization, and so to your point, they're not asking how Native Americans felt. They're not asking how African Americans felt. They're not asking about these kinds of things in terms of how they fit into this narrative. I think that's, that's
0: interesting, though, because there, there's probably no sources about it that are easy to find. But like, how to how to get at that? If they if they're not participating, they're not involved. Um, then that perspective is completely out it's it's we don't have it and mm. and it makes me wonder what it might be and if there are ways of getting to that maybe oral histories, talk to, to people's great criminal
1: proceedings where slaves are interrogated and held in there you go i know a great book i know <laughs> oh <a great> yeah <laughs>
0: i think i do too
1: <laughs> but let's get on to the next uh, um so speaking of like taboo the 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 polygamy one is is is, is pretty fascinating and, and kind of uh, like a you know, like as where, where slavery is a, is a, is a clear evil, but one that we can salve ourselves and feel better about. Because, but, but the, but the, but the the liaison, uh, pun intended, with with polygamy is one that's, that, that's that's really interesting. Yeah, this one was
2: fun to write in a scandalous sort of, you know, this was the sex, drugs, and rock and roll of the, <laughs> of, the of the moral right. exhibit. And it's it's again interesting, so interesting that it's set in Missouri. Uh, because not many decades hence, the Mormons have been driven from Missouri. Practiced polygamy out west. Uh, polygamy was roundly condemned by yeah. Southern Baptists, particularly in the in the Bible Belt. I mean, just absolutely a disgusting taboo behavior to their moral s- sentiments. And they found out that the the Moros had practiced polygamy in the early phases of empire. They were determined to get rid of this. They said it's disgusting. It's it's misogynistic. It's oppressive to women. But by the time they get to the fair. Suddenly, polygamy becomes kind of erotically interesting. And right. guys want to come and they want to look at the Moros and they want to look at the Moro wives and they want to kind of imagine themselves on a tropical island surrounded by beautiful girls that are all <laughs> their servants and wives and, and sexual partners. And it becomes a kind of vicarious fantasy. But, but really, where this blows up, and I think the funniest, most interesting case was there was a guy who lived next to the Moro village named Arthur Anderson. And Arthur Anderson was a great guy. He was affable and polite, and he really was friendly with the Moros. The Moros were friendly with him, and they'd have each other over for dinner, and, and they'd spend time together. And the Moros were so impressed by him that they made him an honorary sultan. And when news of the, this got out, the papers explode, I'm sure with little help from Wax,
1: where the, right.
2: yeah, where the papers explode, and they say, hey, he has been made an honorary sultan. So what this means is if he takes him up, and he moves him into now. He can have both slaves and polygamous wives. And so in the newspaper, it says they offered him slaves. They offered him numerous wives and assurances of the devotion of his subjects. He's considering the proposition with the utmost seriousness. They speculate that of all of Now, Americans don't believe in kings, of course. No, no, no sultans. But if you had to have a sultan, well, maybe an American would be a good one. And so they say it's probable he'd rule them humanely. I mean, he could probably do a good job at it. But then the real scandal is the wives. And so the papers start speculating and say, well, he could have a full harem of wives from the most beautiful girls on the islands. And what's more, he would own all the female slaves on the islands, which would be at his sexual beck and call. And then it turns into it's funny how these sexual fantasies turn from sort of sexual fantasies into almost pornographic fantasies of dominance, you know, where they're saying, well, not only are they wives, but they're slave wives. And then it goes even further. And I mean, this is really where it kind of goes over the top. This St. Louis Post-Dispatch says, uh, Mr. Anderson will own all the female slaves in the barrio or native town over which he rules. He will have the right to whip his wives whenever the spirit moves him. And he can also divorce them at will. And so these fantasies move from he could acquire lots of wives. He could acquire subjects. No, no, no. Wait. It actually acquires slaves, and his wives would be slaves. And as he could slaves, treat them however, he, he could whip them. Yeah, he could treat them however he wants. And so the, the the fantasy really moves almost into the the obscene, as opposed to sort of these general sexual fantasies. And it's interesting how quickly this goes. Um, but. People want to come see polygamous wives now, right? They want to come to the Moral Village. They want to see one of the sultans had a wife die back in Mindanao, and so the paper puts out an ad saying "wife wanted"
1: uh, for for uh, a sultan, <laughs> like 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 back in in the at the exposition, like in St. Yeah, Louis. They, like
2: in St. Louis, they put it in the paper. Oh, wow! And so they're just making a general appeal to whomever. And of course, the speculation is, hey, I think it's generally assumed here in St. Louis that all the guys are fantasizing about polygamy. Would a white woman ever fantasize about being a polygamous white. And so they're subtly sort of probing these extremely taboo, absolutely unthinkable in any other context. Yet the moral exhibit sanitizes these things in a way that it becomes acceptable to try to indulge. This.
0: This, re- this reminds me a lot of present day with, um, like male order wives or, um, the, the websites that pop up like, hey, are you looking for a Filipina wife or whatever? And, and this idea that Asian women are submissive and and that they're different. And be from, acquired. Yes. By, yes. It's, yeah. this, it's the same thing. So it's very interesting to see like how how similar ideas and de- desires are like rearticulated in the present and in different ways, packaged differently
1: the 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 perceived uh, sexual availability of 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 a whole country or ethnic group right is is those are i mean and and, and, and having that back in, in in St. Louis allows it to kind of run wild like to you know to, um as where in a, in a in a it's hard to imagine like a say like a, a county fair or a state fair or something like to slip something lurid past like that but you're like oh this is just we're just doing ethnography here Right. Right. We're just doing and so so it, yeah. it has this it's sort of like the, you know, the, the 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 naked uh National Geographic kind of, you know, like, oh, this is just um science, this man. This is just science. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, you know, and, and so uh yeah, you're you're right, you're right. Those projections on 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 Asian women in particular have not have not gone away. Well, this is just a different, another manifestation. Um well, uh we need to, we need to make some plugs here. One, a couple that I want is this. So, so uh, this is just a, if you like, if you like what you heard listeners, (laughs) this is just a slice of, uh, of, uh, of the book uh, now available in all major outlets. uh, Cornell NIU press semi-civilized, the moral village at the Louisiana purchase uh, exposition um, available on Amazon prime. I just checked here. Uh, And uh, um. And also, you should check out uh, Mike's very great heralded book, uh, "Making Morals Imperial Historicism and American Military Rule um, in in the Philippines." Uh, what's uh, What's What's next in the Hopper, Mike? What's uh, What are What are you What are you thinking about? What are you What are you working on?
2: I got two things in the works, and I'm not sure what to do with them. So the one I'm really excited about is in 1911. There was a Filipino All Star team that came and barnstormed the United States. It's called the Filipino 14. And they started in Hawaii, played games all across the United States over the summer of 1911. Baseball. baseball. And what was so funny is you talk about critics of empire. By 1911, there was a lot of Americans that looked to the Philippines and said, "You know, what are we doing? What, what evidence do we have that we've spent all this money and it's worked? And when the Filipino 14 come, baseball becomes the primary marker of civilizational status. You get newspapers from Hawaii to New York when the Filipinos show out saying, hey, they're totally civilized. Look at that.
1: Mission accomplished. Yeah,
2: <laughs> they absolutely understand the squeeze play. They understand, you know how, how the, you know count management. They understand all of these different things. Are, are they are they
1: beating American teams?
2: So here's the funny thing, and this is where I ran into trouble. Or is trouble. it like a
1: Harlem grove trotter situation? N-
2: no. So they're playing the lights out, but. The newspapers only seem to report the losses. So here's what I'm getting in the records is,
1: oh, Filipinos
2: lose a heartbreaker to the Rockford, whatever, yeah. you know? And then a little bit later in a press release previewing a game in Pennsylvania, it says Filipinos have won 60% of their games. Wait a minute. Yeah, and I'm looking at the records going, wait, wait, I only have a string of losses here. Why didn't y'all write about the wins? And I don't know if they're not writing about them. I don't know if I can't find them. I'm not sure what to do with it. but. Um, I was hoping to make kind of a cool readable book out of this. We'll see if the story pans out. If not, there's definitely Netflix series. Yes, (laughs) exactly. It would be a great. It would be a really great like movie or something. Oh, and there's such characters. I mean, the catcher, the Filipino catcher, cannot stand to have dirt on his uniform. And so if he, his equipment gets dirty, he takes it off. And they're like, hey, you can't play without a chest protector. And he's like, well, it's got dirt on it, and I'm not going to use it. And they're like, fine, take one in the chest, see if I <laughs> care. And he's, wow. he's, he's out there playing without equipment. I mean, they're just so amazing. Um, and, and welcomed by Americans was the, it was the amazing thing, is, is on the baseball field, at least in the reported ones, it doesn't seem to show a great deal of, uh, oh, look, who do they think they are, think they can play with Americans, think that, no, there's a great deal of, Praise and hope, and this is civilization's game. And look at this, how wonderful it is! And I think it does more for the empire at that point in terms of, hey, maybe we're doing something right over there. Look at them; they're playing baseball, right? Than democratic government or education or <laughs> sanitation or any of the other things. Rules, yeah. Yeah. Uh,
1: well, um as always, we we love to we love to have you here. Uh, come come back again soon for sure. And uh thanks Izzy for joining us.
0: Thank you for having me. Yeah, for yeah. sure.
1: And uh we'll, we'll tease a little uh you you might hear a little uh um uh a, a podcast from from <laughs> Izzy and friends that uh that is in development, can we say? Yeah. Yeah, okay. <laughs> well, we'll that's we'll It we'll, is
0: in embryonic stages. Yeah, we'll
1: just it's just a tease for now. But okay. um but yeah, uh Thanks again. Uh, Michael Hawkins is the author. uh, And uh, join us again for another episode of Southeast Asia Crossroads. Thank
2: you guys so much. It was absolutely a blast.